Welcome to the enchanting world of nursery rhymes, where childhood memories and timeless tales intertwine. Join us on the A Tisket Tasket podcast as we embark on a delightful journey through the rich history and captivating origins of beloved nursery rhymes. Tune in for an exploration that will delight nursery rhyme enthusiasts and folklore aficionados alike. And now your host, Gina. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Gina, and welcome to episode number 26. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different, and that is go over some of the symbolism that appeared in the previous three nursery rhymes that I've covered. Those nursery rhymes are, there was an old lady who swallowed a fly, there was an old woman who lived in a shoe, and old Mother Hubbard. If you haven't yet, please check out those episodes anywhere you listen to this podcast. I wanted to make a special episode of this podcast to cover some of the symbolism that appeared in these previous episodes that I just didn't get a chance to talk about. Specifically, I wanted to cover two main things. First of all, I wanted to cover shoes. Did you know that there is a lot of folklore and culture and superstitions behind the humble shoe? I certainly didn't, and so today I'm going to talk a little bit about those. Secondly, I want to cover what all three of these nursery rhymes have in common, and that is the old woman. So join me today where we talk about the fun symbolism behind some truly bizarre stories. Shoes in Womanhood. To begin, I happened to stumble across a wonderful podcast called Fabulous Folklore, and podcast and author Icy Sedgwick talks for an entire episode on the folklore and culture behind shoes. She covers quite a bit about the old belief in old superstitions behind shoes. Just some of the things that she talks about and some of the other things that I found in research when looking up why are shoes prevalent in nursery rhymes or in folklore, Icy Sedgwick and I have covered the following. First of all, did you know that builders used to conceal shoes in houses? That's right. Concealed shoes in houses by builders was very prevalent, especially in the 18th and 19th century. And the idea was that a shoe hidden was for protection. Archaeologists and researchers continue to find single shoes in walls, ceilings, and under floors. Icy Sedgwick says that the Northampton Museum and Art Gallery shoe curators have collected over 3,000 shoes since the 1950s from the 18th and 19th centuries. Children's shoes were apparently particularly meant to bring good luck. And so if you happen to be doing renovations in an older home and you find a shoe, 
That just means that whoever was building the home wanted to have the house filled with some little extra luck. Shoes were apparently also left in mines, particularly coal and copper mines, as a ward against bad luck. This apparently goes with the old saying, where there is muck, there is luck. Author and historian Jacqueline Simpson notes that this custom can be found all over the UK, where shoes have been found in Yorkshire, Debershire, and Wales. Now, I question, is this the same in the United States? Did people leave shoes in mind here? If you know, let me know. Furthermore, women apparently would place shoes on a mantelpiece as a sign of good luck. And shoe charms were often worn for the same reason. Using shoes as tools for love divination was also quite popular. Young women in the 19th century were said to place their shoes in a shape of a T next to their bed and recite the phrase, I set my shoes in the form of a T, hoping true love for them to see. It is said then, if she did this correctly, she would dream of her one true love. There are still more ways in which shoes might divine a woman's love life, uh, shoes and stockings and those sort of things, and I'll post a link on my blog if you're interested in finding out more. Apparently, this is fairly common. Further, and I talked a little bit about this in the nursery rhyme, there was an old woman who lived in a shoe, throwing shoes was also quite popular. The art of tying shoes to a newly married couple's car came from a much older practice of when people used to throw shoes at a couple. It appears in the book Proverbs by John Hayward, 1546, with the belief that, for good luck, cast an old shoe after me. Even Queen Victoria talked about this in her journal in 1855. Shoes were also meant to bring fertility. A woman wearing a pair of shoes from a woman who had given birth successfully was meant to bestow fertility on the wearer. So shoes held a lot of superstition. But what I could not find was the idea of a woman living in a shoe or the idea of living in shoes. So I still don't quite know the connection between the superstition and folklore behind shoes and the nursery rhyme. There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. But there are many shoe superstitions that I haven't even covered, including shoes bringing uh, money if you gave shoes as a present and all the bad luck that shoes could bring, including if you put shoes up on a table, that could mean argument or bad temper in the home or even be a portent for death. So researchers and folklorists have been wondering why shoes? Why are shoes connected with luck? Well, shoes are very personal and shoes worn for a long time and it, it is it wears itself and it molds itself to the wearer's foot. The idea might be that shoes might soak up an essence or the soul of a person. And throughout history, in many different cultures, shoes and feet were indications of sexuality and gender and status. Shoes around the world and in many different cultures hold a lot of different places in folklore. And honestly, I think someone could do a whole podcast on shoes or write a dissertation on shoes. And so these are just some of the things that I have looked up and I've discovered when I was trying to tie shoes, no pun intended, with the nursery rhymes that I've covered this month. Furthermore, I was looking into kind of more of the symbolism behind shoes and I came across a website via the University of Warwick 
which was called The Meaning of Shoes. And associate professor Giorgio Riello writes about shoes and culture. And he says, shoes have for centuries given hints about a person's character, social and cultural place, even sexual preferences. Shoes are powerful things as they can take control over the physical and human space in which we live. And so some of these ideas apparently have bled from a physical manifestation of a thing into beliefs in culture. And I thought that was really cool. And I was just so blown away about all the things that shoes can represent. And I just feel like I haven't even kind of covered minutia of it. So if you are interested in learning more, please let me know. Secondly, I wanted to cover and talk about women in folklore and history and literature. In a previous life, I was a English professor and I talked a lot and learned a lot about women in literature. And again, this is a idea and focus that is what is much bigger than this podcast episode. And in fact, Women appearing in literature and folklore and nursery rhymes could be its own podcast in itself. People have written entire books on it. People have written their whole dissertation. People have have dedicated their entire academic career in studying women in these spaces. So what I cover here is really just the tiny tip of how women are portrayed and viewed. So if you are interested in learning more about this, Please do some research and look into yourself because I can talk for hours about this. But the three nursery rhymes that I've covered this month, there was an old woman who lived in a shoe, old Mother Hubbard, and I know an old woman who swallowed a fly. Those are actually just three of the many nursery rhymes talking about old women. I talk a lot about Opie and Opie's the Dictionary of Nursery Rhymes. And even in that book, which just covers nursery rhymes from the UK and Britain, have has 18 nursery rhymes that have the first line about old women. And that's just the first line. That doesn't even talk about nursery rhymes that have old women as characters or have old women as protagonists or an- antagonists or even just mention old women. So when I say that Old women are prevalent in nursery rhymes. I really can't emphasize this enough. And so the question then becomes why? Well, a lot of people smarter than me have had theories about this. First, we have the dichotomy between old woman versus young woman. Now, this dichotomy features all throughout literature, and it may also be known as the the maiden and the crone. And so here we're really talking about two dichotomous views of womanhood. And the young woman may represent the perfect ideal of womanhood. And you really need to consider this perspective from a man. So when we consider who is ruling and we consider power, we consider the patriarchy, right? And so the patriarchy or those in power see the young woman as what a woman should be. And that is usually demure, beautiful, sometimes naive, and portraying traits that a young woman should aspire to. And so in nursery rhymes, sometimes you see the character of the young woman as what a child, as a a female child should aspire to. 
And again, those aren't my beliefs. That's just what we see in history. Now, this direct contrast, of course, is the crone. Someone, an old woman, usually past the age of childbearing, which is very important, right? We see women as producers. We see women as producing children. And I could to rant about that all day, but I won't. But the old woman or the crone is usually seen as evil, as ambitious, as ugly, as stealing or even eating children, right? And so this crone idea really butts up against this idea of young womanhood. And you almost get this picture of black and white and either or. A woman can't really be both even though we think about the aging process, but it ha in, in literature and superstition, you do see these tropes of what a woman should, it should be or shouldn't be, should or should not represent. Scholar Patel writes in their thesis, and their thesis is called Gender Roles Indoctrinated Through Fairy Tales in Western Civilization, has a chapter on female roles in fairy tales. They write about the polarization of the female trope, either naive and idealistic or evil and ambitious. They go on to discuss that the historical impetuses of these roles, discussing drastic changes in the role of women in Western civilization, taking place in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Specifically, they quote from Cinderella, Snow White, and Sleeping Beauty discussing both the heroine and the villain. And I think Snow White is a really great example. Actually, all three of these are really great examples, right? We have the young, naive woman, and we have the evil crone who is trying to do them harm. And we see this in other bits of culture as well. I was listening to a really, really fascinating radio interview that, that was recorded in 1958. And it's called Witchcraft Through the Ages, and it's Dr. Wayland Han, interviewed by Colin Edwards. Dr. Han talks about witches, and in culture, should be a 50%, 50% male-female split. But there is a discussion of most witches being women and connected with the devil and, quote, some sort of sexual situation. And so sex and gender really play a part in this idea of womanhood as well. And in this particular context, they were talking about witchcraft in Christianity and uh, witchcraft appearing in the Bible. But Han goes on to discuss this idea of the weird sisterhood in discussion of spinsters or not married women being witches. Or if they were a young woman, they had a flaw. And he particularly comments those evil-tempered or bad-tempered young women being witches. Hand explains the popular assumption that reclusive, unattractive, physically handicapped, or women with any kind of idiosyncrasies are witches or outcasts. And again, so we see that womanhood is this dichotomy of ideal versus not ideal, and any characteristics that make a woman not a good woman, right? Not a producer, or ill, or ambitious, or have leadership qualities right, or have a different sexual identity than what is expected, they're considered evil. They're considered to be aligned with the devil. They are considered to be closely aligned to witchcraft. And we see this again and again in folklore, and we see this sometimes in nursery rhymes. Specifically, when I hark back to there was an old woman who lived in a shoe, she's portrayed as 
ugly. She's portrayed as mean. She's portrayed as beating and whipping children and sending them to bed with no supper. In the other two nursery rhymes, Old Mother Hubbard, I Know an Old Woman Who Swallowed a Fly, both those women are also portrayed usually as ugly, as very old, as having characteristics that are not ideal to being a prosperous young woman in the time. And this actually goes way back before the 18th and 19th or 20th century in which I talk a lot about nursery rhymes. And this goes back to even the ancient Greek and Roman myths. Smithsonian correspondent Norma Grevy writes about why a surprising number of creatures are coded as women. In her article, McGreevy quotes classicist Debbie Felton, citing that it speaks to men's fear of women's destructive potential and fulfills men's fantasy of conquering and controlling the female. McGreevy references terrifying creatures of legends such as Medusa, the Lamia, Sphinx, Scylia, and Charbdis. Further, she consults curator Madeline Ginnon, who speaks to arts and myths revealing patriarchal constraints on womanhood. These myths talk about the male expectations on womanhood and portray an eerie dichotomy of a woman possessing both beauty and ugliness. Women possessing traits such as aspiration, knowledge, strength, and desire are considered monstrous, not heroic. And as a woman, I do find it problematic that this is something that has been discussed and theorized and thought about all the way back to the ancient Greece. So before even the written word when oral tradition, we have this clear idea of women being something less yet something more, the ideal of womanhood. But I actually want to turn this on its head as well. So in this particular article, she talks about the monsters that are coded as women. But I also want to remind people that there are also females coded as heroes. We have Athena, we have Hera, we have Helen of Troy. And yes, those women do have fatal flaws, but I would argue that men in Greek and Roman literature also show fatal flaws. And so I find it interesting that there can be such there can be such a dichotomy, I guess is what I'm saying. I find it interesting that there are women portrayed as both heroes and monsters. And I think that speaks to womanhood in society and we are always trying to fight to uh, we are always fighting to be seen as equal and as strong and i'm curious to know in a hundred years when people look at literature from our time what it says about womanhood furthermore i do want to go back and talk a little bit more about women in nursery rhymes and so I have not found any research on this. And so this, I guess, is also a call for research. So if any young scholar out there is looking for a project, then I, then I urge you to look into this. If women are, are seen as monsters, especially in these nursery rhymes, and I've talked a lot about, about how nursery rhymes are also coded as like political satire, and nursery rhymes can also say a lot about the culture of the time, I'm wondering what it says about culture and these nursery rhymes and who is saying these nursery rhymes, right? Who are telling these nursery rhymes to children? Because it's certainly not men. So when we think about nursery rhymes popularity in the, I would say, the 18th and 19th and 20th century, maybe even 21st, I guess you can make that argument, we see that the majority of child raising 
has to do with womanhood. It is their role, right? It is their, they are coded to do that, that it, it's their, they are seen as their work in the domestic sphere. And a lot of times when we talk about nursery rhymes in the 18th century, especially, we see that maybe it might not even be the, specific, the direct mother selling these nursery rhymes. It could be a wet nurse. It could be a servant or a slave. And so is womanhood powerful in nursery rhymes? But or I, I guess what I'm asking is, is there a study or can you think of instances where women in nursery rhymes are considered powerful? Because what I focus on this week, it's old women and old women are not considered powerful unless she's like a magical witch. I guess we have like the fairy godmother. but. There is a clear trope of old women being associated with witchcraft and evil and both carrying physical traits of this as well as kind of innate traits of this. And so I guess I'm really hung up on this idea of if the women are telling these nursery rhymes and are coming up with these nursery rhymes, why aren't there more nursery rhymes or are there more nursery rhymes that depict women as more powerful? Because certainly if I had a child, I would want to tell her stories about women being strong, uh, women overcoming obstacles, maybe women taking down the patriarchy. But I guess that's another podcast episode. But overall, I want to thank you for listening to me really ramble this week because I really wanted to dedicate an entire episode on some of the symbolisms and tropes that I didn't get a chance to talk about in previous episodes. And so to recap, I covered there was an old woman who swallowed a fly, and there was an old woman who lived in a shoe, and old Mother Hubbard earlier this month, and I really wanted to spend more time delving into the symbolism of both womanhood and shoes. Because when I first started this, I had no idea how important a role shoes played in folklore. Maybe next time I'll find other examples of symbolism that I'd like to delve deeper into. But for this week, I'll sign off. Thank you for listening and continue to listen next week where I will talk more about the weirdness of nursery rhymes. Thank you for listening to a Tisket Tasket podcast. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. If you found value in today's content, please share with others and consider leaving a review. Also, follow Gina on all social media platforms, and we'll see you next time.